Hi, I'm Kira Brigherek. And I'm Nicole Breeden. And you're listening to ProPrac, a podcast where we explore the professional practice of artists and hear their stories. Today, our guest is Kelly Fleedner. Kelly is a Perth-based writer and curator who writes fiction and art criticism and is currently a PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia in the School of Design where she teaches. Some of Kelly's recent projects include a curatorial and publishing program with Bangalore-based artist Abhishek Hazra for Westspace and a column about art and books for Runway Journal. From 2016 until 2017, Kelly was the writer and editor of the Kochi Muziris Biennale based in Kerala, India. Kelly's current research is interested in the discourses of post-colonialism and decolonization as they manifest in the contemporary art of India. In 2016, Kelly presented a series of radio plays for the Next Wave Festival and was one of six artists taking part in the Biennale of Sydney's experimental writing project, The Bureau of Writing. Both of these projects have been incorporated into an ongoing project called On the Beach, a podcast that focuses on the convergence of critical and creative discourses surrounding contemporary art. Kelly was program curator at Westspace, an artist-run initiative in Melbourne from 2009 until 2013, and co-founder and co-editor with Rowan McNaught of their online publication, The Westspace Journal, until 2015. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kelly. And uh, joining us via FaceTime today as well. This is our first time doing this. So um, the wonders <laughs> of the internet bringing us all together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Kira, for having me. Um, let's just see how we go with FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed we don't get cut off too many times. Yes, I have faith. Um, um, the failures of NBN can, can fucking us up constantly forever, forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's kick this off by asking you um how did you get to where you are today um okay so I actually find this a really difficult question to answer because like I was saying before I have a really diverse practice and often it's really difficult to when people ask me what I do to have like any kind of coherent answer because that sure. can be any one time of the day like a really different thing like arts administrator curator writer I have different writing practices I, I write criticism I write for catalogs I write my own creative work I have like a weird writing practice that is in between creative and critical and um I often I work as a teacher <laughs> I'm doing my PhD I have expertise overseas and at home. Like all of these things are quite diverse and um, are, are all still like very important parts of like what I think of as like an expanded kind of creative practice. But um, everything that has led up, like everything that I've done in my my 12 or so years in the arts industry has played an important role in all of the projects that I'm like working on right now. But it's not, it doesn't have like a kind of linear trajectory. It's mm. not like I can kind of pinpoint one particular moment and say that's why I'm here now or there's like no particular one narrative or one story of like that defines my practice as such. So it's just a difficult question, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for you, was there a particular kind of point in time when you were a bit younger that you decided to pursue a career in the arts or did you just sort of find yourself there naturally going towards that? Um, tell us a little bit about that kind of story. Um, so 
I haven't ever been like a strategic person in terms of my involvement in the arts. Like it's always been very intuitive and I feel like a really lucky person actually. Like I was in the right place at the right times or certain people like took a liking to me and kind of nurtured my involvement in the arts and kind of encouraged it. And so there hasn't been one particular point, although um, I am lucky in that I've had a very supportive, like every, I felt like the arts has always been like open and accessible to me, even though like I grew up in regional Victoria and my family are pretty working class and I never had, like art was never a thing. I don't think I really ever visited an art gallery or a museum, like the whole of my high school years. Mm. And so art wasn't like ever a kind of thing that for me, like it wasn't that it was inaccessible or not open. It just wasn't ever a thing. But having said that, um, I was always a pretty creative kid, like, and a pretty critically minded kid too. Like I always had like quite an active political engagement with what was like happening around me for like even just like a young teenager mm-hmm. being really conscious of like kind of social and political mechanisms around me so I guess like having that kind of critical engagement with the world around me really helped and also I read like shitloads of books when I was a kid so I think that really helps like you kind of building a foundation for being in the arts um yeah, and then I got into an arts degree at Melbourne University and just I just really liked all of the art history subjects mm-hmm. like that's really how it was like I liked the art history subjects over the history subjects and so I did more of them and then um I was really lucky because at Melbourne University there were some really really good teachers when I was there um Charles Green who is still there but um Anthony Gardiner who isn't there anymore or I had a tutor in it was maybe like a contemporary art subject Jared Rawlins who now works at um, Mona in Hobart. But, you know, like I think I was always just really active in class, like participating in conversation. And Jared one day said to me, hey, you volunteering at any galleries in Melbourne? And I was like, no, I didn't even know that that was like a thing that you did. Um, And he was like, yeah, yeah, you should like go volunteer at one of the Aries or something. And I was like, well, what... (laughs) what Ari's and he was like I've got a friend Mark Ferry at West Space you should like go have a chat to him and like that is literally how I like started in the arts because West Space is like so important for my early career and well actually still really important plays a really important role in the way that I like kind of navigate the arts or the relationships that I've built and and so just like kind of going and hanging out at West Space and like volunteering that seems like such a pivotal kind of thing to happen when you're a teenager still you know Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. it's incredible and how long were you with West Pace for so um (laughs) like a really long time (laughs) like too long like an embarrassingly amount of long time um yeah so I guess I've started volunteering there during undergrad and Actually, this is an important thing because just getting the vibe with this podcast is that you're kind of talking to younger artists, like getting started. Mm -hmm. I volunteered so much in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you're like, um, everyone everyone has a really different kind of um, experience of undergrad, but it is like the time of your life when 
you don't really need that much money and you can like get by like working your ass off like I just like work, like I had two part-time jobs was doing uni full-time and volunteering at like three arts organizations it's like hectic but I think um by the time that I'd finished undergrad I'd had all this experience already so it wasn't too difficult to me for me to make a transition into actual paid work mm. um, after undergrad. And I know that lots of people spend their undergrad kind of immersed in the university kind of structure, which is great. And I kind of wish that I had have spent a little bit more time being more intellectual in undergrad. But I was just working too much and like doing all this other stuff and had energy in other places. But I kind of don't regret that either because as soon as I got out, I was kind of really well placed to actually have a job. Um, but yeah, I, so I started at Westface during undergrad and I guess I just was hanging out there so much and, um, really enjoying having conversations with everyone who was there at the time. And that includes people like Vicky McInnes and Simon Maidman and Mark Ferry and all of those people who have become like, who at that time were like really important mentors to me. And I, at some stage I got invited to be on the program committee. And then, um, and all of these roles are still voluntary, but are kind of important, are important kind of institutional roles to have because you learn so much about art spaces when you're involved in programming committees and committees attached to artist-run initiatives. Um, and then at some stage, I was acting program coordinator. So Mark Ferry had, had gone overseas. I think he'd gone to like um, career or something on, on some kind of OSCO program. And, and he asked me, um, if I would take over for him for three months. And I did. And in that time I curated an exhibition and did a bunch of stuff and, um, was slowly building a really good working relationship with the new director, Fit Murray at that time. And then Mark, he never came back to Westface. He essentially got a job at another gallery and then the position was open and then I applied for that position and I got it. Mm-hmm. So when I was saying I was lucky before, I really truly mean that. Like I was lucky to be in the, like, the right place at the right time. Mm. Um, and so I became program coordinator at Westface, a role that changed to program curator. So it had more of a kind of curatorial um, kind of agenda probably halfway through the time that I was there. And I think I had that role, those two roles, for about four years. I'm not quite sure. It could be a bit less than that. But um, at some point, there was a move from Anthony Street to Burke Street, where West Faces has been up until now for the last like four or five years, I think. Um, And now it's moving on again. But um, I was kind of there for the move, did a bunch of offside projects with Fit Murray, um, worked on some really big curatorial projects for Next Wave um, and the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival and just like all these other random crazy projects. Um, and then toward the end of my time as program curator at Westface, I initiated a project with Rowan McNaught called the Westface Journal, which was an online um, quite experimental publishing kind of platform that we worked on together for a few years. And I resigned as program curator and kind of stayed on as um, editor of the Westface Journal for a few years after that. So mm. it, I have no idea how much in total that is, but it's like <laughs> six or so years oh, that I was involved. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And then actually last year I last year I also got to curate a project 
with Westface. So it's a relationship that has like kind of um, continued for a very, very long time. So obviously that space is like really important to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. While you were in those roles, were you also working on your writing practice, like your creative writing practice at the same time or was that something that you kind of put on hold for a while um, or were you yeah. kind of happening at the same time? Yeah, actually it's really, it, I found it really difficult when I was working at Westface to do any kind of creative projects outside of Westface. So, um and I actually really think about that first part of my career in the arts, the first part that was like predominantly at Westface, although I worked at heaps of other arts organisations as well. Like I did work with Un Magazine and I worked with a regional art organisation called Punctum, which does like experimental performance. And so it wasn't like Westface was the only thing that I was kind of doing, but it definitely was like the focus of that first kind of six years of my arts career. Um and I just was working like a crazy person. Like mm. FIP and I and everyone else involved with Westface, at that stage it didn't have ongoing funding. So we were um, – so now Westface is a key arts organisation with Australia Council, so it has ongoing operational funding, which is wonderful and it totally needs it. But when I started there, it didn't have that. So that kind of happened a little bit later on in the – scheme so my first like few years of working at Westface was just so intense because the only way that we could fund the organization which included paying rent and paying our like very minimal wages like I think I was getting paid like for two days a week at like pro rata 35 grand or something so it's like kind of crazy thinking back how much you work for like so Mm. little money but Mm. all of that was getting funded through projects so um you would have like little extra parts of projects that would kind of go into operational funding or whatever. So we're just working like a shitload. Um, And I really didn't have the mental space to be able to work on my own creative writing until much later on in the project when Westface had kind of secured funding and there was more space to kind of think about things in a kind of open way. Um, And also starting the Westface Journal and working on that project with Roel McNaught, which was a far more kind of experimental approach to arts writing and language that I, and I'd never really pushed my writing in that kind of way before. Um, so working on that project with him really was the start of my thinking about having a career as like a creative practitioner as well as like an arts administrator. So um, after, after Westface... <laughs> Then it's what still, happened? It's still going. Yeah. No. Um, then what happened? How did we get um, to India from uh, from Westface? Oh, States? shit. There's so much in between. So after Westface, I just didn't want – actually, I must have been there for less than five years as the program curator because I, I remember having that time in my head. I was like, I can't be here for more than five years. Like I was really <laughs> conscious of that as a deadline. I was like – I can't be in this organization for more than five years. And it wasn't even so much for like my like personal growth. Well, it's it's like what kind of millennial are you, Kelly? (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah, job for five years. You're crazy. (laughs) Well, I think I think also I was like, I obviously really care about Westface as an institution. And I think that it's really unhealthy when people stay at institutions for the institution's sake. 
Like it's mm-hmm. just so much better when people kind of give, give space up for like a next generation or someone else to kind of come in and like do their own thing. I think it's really unhealthy when people stay at the one spot. It's unhealthy for them and it's unhealthy for the organisation. So I was very conscious of that being like a deadline. Um, so I resigned from Westface with literally no idea of what I wanted to do and I was so lucky I got a um, residency through the Australia Council and I went to London for four months to I guess like have some space and think about my writing practice and I, I think I really genuinely got that that residency off the back working on West Space Journal so um, they kind of saw that I was interested in experimental publishing platforms and kind of collaborative writing projects and different kind of ways of thinking about writing's relationship with the arts and so I so I was asked to go and do that and um, so I had four months in the UK meeting other young writers and practitioners and getting to do workshops with the really amazing people like met an, a writer Maria Fusco who's an experimental arts writer um, whose writing practice has really influenced mine and so I got I was really lucky um, and while I was over there, so all of this is, sounds really boring probably because it's found like, like a series of domino effects but I feel like everything has kind of led on to one thing mm-hmm. for me but mm-hmm. when I was in the UK, I think Tony Abbott came into power and I had this like epic panic attack about, oh, fuck, there's going to be like no money for the arts. Like this is, we're all fucked. Like what mm-hmm. am I going to do? I'm going to have to get a job. And so that kind of sense of like reality really kicked in when I was over there because I like enjoyed this amazing like gift of having four months without having to like work on anything but your own like creative self and just like have the space to like think up ideas, like not – there's like no pressure because you don't have to acquit and I think they're not expecting you to like have an outcome mm-hmm. um and so I just had this like dread of like coming back to Australia and Tony Abbott being the prime minister and like I need a job so I really hustled in the last part of my residency to get a job to come back to and once again I was super lucky I got a job at Monash University Museum of Art um, in a communications role. So I was there for two years and do you know what? It wasn't the right role for me. I really, I found out really quickly that like communications just wasn't something I was interested in. Mm. I don't think I was particularly bad at it. Like I probably was pretty good. People I've worked with have said that I was like a good, (laughs) like I was good at my job, but it just wasn't something that I was like into. I loved working at Mama though because I really believed in their program and everyone else who worked there was like wonderful. Um, all of the curators there and the staff. And also it's just a fucking excellent gallery with an amazing collection and they um, give heaps of opportunities to emerging practitioners from Australia and it's just a really great institution. But the role wasn't for me. But having said that, while I worked there for the two years, I worked pretty solidly continuing my creative practices. So I was only I was only working like three days a week. So I had the extra time to kind of work on other stuff. And so when I was at Manash, I worked on two big creative projects, one with Next Wave Festival and the other one with the Sydney Biennale. Um, both like pretty intense kind of creative projects. The one with Sydney Biennale was a collaborative project called the Bureau of Writing. And the one with Next Wave was 
a writing project where I was writing kind of creative responses to other art, other other, other projects in Next Wave. Mm-hmm. Anyway, blah blah blah. <laughs> Sydney Biennale project. When I was there, I met an artist from India. His name was Sudarshan Shetty, and he was exhibiting at Art Gallery of New South Wales with the Biennale. And we just like from happenstance had an amazing conversation about the relationship that art has with writing. Mm -hmm. And um, I was seeing a person at the time who is now my husband, (laughs) Robbie, um, who is half Indian. And so I remember saying to this guy, I knew Sadarshan, and I knew that he was the next curator of the Kochi Mazuris Biennale, which is a Biennale based in the south of India. I was like, look, Robbie and I are going to come to India um, so if you want any, if you want any help with some writing, because he was curating the Biennale, but he's not a writer himself or a curator. He's an artist, and and um, we had had this amazing kind of creative conversation. Like we obviously really got along. And at some point, he emailed me and offered me a full time job with the Biennale. Wow. So it kind of was like just a lots of really like kind of lucky happenstances. Like I was at. Sydney Biennale working on a writing project and I met an artist who was writing working on this other project and we just had a great conversation and and it also was meaningful that like my partner is Indian and so the jump like going and working on a project in India didn't seem like too much of a kind of um crazy leap like I had I felt like comfortable about doing that Mm -hmm. yeah Hmm. so much of our practices lead from one project to the other and we don't know totally um, exactly where we're going to end up at the end of it. We kind of start off with one idea and end up somewhere else. So, and, and also I think the interesting thing about, um, different people coming into your lives, like you're networking essentially by creating friendships with people and they're the people that will end up like putting you up for positions or advocating for you, um, over at a meeting, um, yeah to put you forward for a position um so yeah I, I think there's a lot to be said of always being like nice and open to having conversations with whoever you're having a conversation with because you don't yeah. know what that conversation could lead to yeah and also like just try your best always mm. like I know that that is such a kind of subjective way to think about the things that we make because like obviously some people are not going to be into your work and other people are but um having like just putting 100% into all of the things that you do really helps I think because you just don't know how that's going to affect like future opportunities or mm. and even if something feels like really insignificant like prepare for it mm-hmm. and like try like put your like give a hundred percent yeah yeah um some of our other guests have talked um at length about the importance of kind of being friends with everyone that you meet and you know not not instrumentalizing your relationships but just showing up being yourself being really nice to everyone and um yeah kind of just yeah be, being think, there yeah yeah I think it's important to say like yeah, don't like instrumentalize everything. Like mm. I'm not saying that because there's nothing like more distasteful than people <laughs> who are like totally just wanting networking. to advertise. Aggressively networking. networking. And you can Aggressive. smell it a what mile away. <laughs> I know it's just too much. All those people that are on Instagram telling everyone constantly about all the things they're always doing. 
ah, it's too much. It's like, chill out. We get it. You're doing some cool shit. (laughs) So you already kind of mentioned with um, not being able to focus so much on your creative practice when you are at Westspace. Um, But has there been any other kind of challenges that you have had to overcome to continue your creative practice or any other areas of your practice? Um... I, yeah, I guess, yeah, of course, like everyone has day-to-day challenges. Um, Do you know what though, like, like I kind of was talking before about Westspace, that time at Westspace being like the first part of my career. And um, when you work at a place like Westspace, you're working with so many different artists and um, it was the first place that like people knew me. And they knew me as like Kelly, who's a curator at Westface. Um, and actually being a curator wasn't necessarily something that I wanted to do. Like I love curating exhibitions and working with artists. Like I love that more than anything. But um, it also, I I was far more of a bookish person. Like I had always been a book person Um And I knew that I wanted to be a writer more than I wanted to be a curator. And actually it was difficult um, because people like constantly want to put you in a box. And after I left Westspace, people just email me and be like, do you want this curatorial job or this arts admin job? Or um, I would put you forward for this if you want. And that sounds like amazing. (laughs) It's like all these opportunities, (laughs) but it just, I just didn't want to do that. Like I wanted to focus on my writing and I wanted to, I wanted to read more and I wanted to go back to art history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely took a while, I think, to kind of break away from that. And I think I actually had to leave Melbourne for people to realise that I wasn't like a curator, that I'm like more of a writer than a curator or, um, yeah. And and I guess because I'd been working at Westspace for so long and it was such a large workload um, I hadn't, I hadn't spent, I had spent years not thinking about theory or art history or, um, writing in the way that I probably wanted to. And so it did take a little while to kind of get back into that groove and like kind of refocus myself, but I guess that's not a challenge and I'm not, um, I'm really happy that I have all of that experience at that, those institutions because it's still, it means that I always have something to kind of I I always have like something to work on because it's quite easy. I It's quite easy, I think, to find work as an arts administrator comparative to like an artist or a writer. And so um, I'll always be thankful for all of that experience because it means that I can still kind of be in the arts world without having to stress out about like money. Um, having said that, I haven't like been an arts administrator for quite a while now, but mm-hmm. um you know, like I'm constantly kind of getting asked to do things in that kind of sphere. And so it's always good to have that like career path opportunity. Yeah, mm, mm. And of course, all the contacts and the friendships that you build within those spaces and those experiences. Oh my God. Yeah. Like there are people that I met at Westspace, you know, like I said before, Fit Murray, you know, like she's like genuinely one of my best favorite people in the whole world. Mm. And, um, I love her and I love like and we and she has 
she's constantly someone that I can kind of ask advice and help for or people like Veronica Kent or Brad Haylock or Stuart Geddes who were on the board of Westbase when I was a staff member there who were like so incredibly supportive and are amazing practitioners in their own part. And so when you're in a place like that and you have all these amazing people around you, the opportunities that you can see that there are all these opportunities because there are all these people around you who have had them, who have like done those things. It doesn't feel like a huge like leap. So yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so when you've talked a little bit about um, how, you know, you, you want to focus more on your writing and getting away from that more administrative or curator um, role, um, what does, like to you, what does having a successful practice look like? Um, that's a hard question too, because I guess like a successful practice is just a practice that's happening, um, that you're you're doing stuff, but I guess, um, reading every day, writing every day, having conversations every day with people that you love and who are like generative Mm-hmm. you know, like generative, creative conversations with people every day. Like that's, that's like, that's the aim. Mm. Um, you know, ha- hanging out with people, working on projects, um, working. Yeah. I love working on big projects. Like the thing, you know, when I went to India and I worked with Kochi Mazuris Biennale, I wrote the Biennale's catalog. Um, and it's quite unusual for a writer to get a opportunity like that because catalogues for biennales are often written by like multiple people they'll have like a whole curatorial team or um or a communications team that is working on the one publication um obviously because it's a really big project to do and Mm. it's easier if a bunch of people do it um but it is an amazing opportunity to get to like sit down and work on one massive writing project one for one project you know so I wrote like 60,000 words and researched that in the space of like four months so it was like a crazy kind of workload but it was so such an enjoyable process to kind of sit down and work on something so big um and I had never done that before and then that's all I want to do now like I don't want to work on like small projects anymore I just want to work on like big projects and that's why I'm doing a PhD because I was like how can I I was gonna say how can I make the biggest project of all (laughs) yeah so it just made sense for me when I came back that that would be like the next step because it's very rare that you get an opportunity like that with an arts organization although um hopefully down the track I can kind of like replicate that in some kind of way somewhere but yeah other, I guess it's like working on big book projects is like the thing that I want to do. Yeah, mm. cool. Um, so, can you can you talk a little bit about? Um, so I think I'm I'm really interested. You know, you're talking before about leaving Melbourne and uh, you know the the Sydney Melbourne kind of community arts community very insular. Can you maybe talk a little bit about why um, Perth was such a draw for you? Because I think it, I think maybe it wouldn't be such an obvious um, uh, destination for some people. Um, to be honest, we are here because Robbie's family are here. 
So Robbie, who my um, partner that I mentioned before, um, he grew up in Perth. We met each other in Melbourne just before I left Melbourne and we left Melbourne together um, and then lived overseas for a few years together in India part of that time and in New York part of that time. And then we were kind of, we were like, okay, let's go back to Australia. Um, where do we go? And we were thinking about lots of different places. Like I was genuinely thinking about like starting a PhD in Canberra. So we were thinking maybe we could move to Canberra. That would be cool. And then it, he just was like, well, why don't we just go back to Perth for a little while and like see how that works because his family are here and that's like really a fun kind of proposition because I'd never really spent very much time in WA and it's genuinely an interesting place. <laughs> like, mm. I think in the East Coast or, you know, growing up in Victoria or Sydney or, you know, anywhere on that kind of um, the Eastern Seaboard, um, our understanding of Australian history is really skewed to that kind of part of the country. Yeah, and absolutely. so just spending time in WA, actually just spending time out of Australia, like in India and realising that there is this whole other art world going on that is very outside of the silo of the Melbourne art world. Mm -hmm. um, I really just loved that and I loved kind of like learning about different histories and stuff and, you know, WA has an amazing history, like kind of paracolonial history before the British were here and and obviously there is this incredible like Indigenous history here that you just don't know if you don't come and hang out here and like talk to Aboriginal people and be on country and kind of learn different stories. And so it's just been really great, like, getting to know a different part of Australia and a different part of Australia's history. Um, and, yeah, I'm really lucky because I just got asked to work on a project for an organisation called Tura Music, Tura New Music, which is, which is an experimental art organisation, um, experimental music organisation, sorry. And... Um, they're going to fly me up north to a bunch of art centres to work on projects with community. And okay. so that just would never have happened if I was in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And so for these like really fun projects that I find like really exciting and nourishing, you just kind of have to like leave your comfort zone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Great. Um, so many great artists in Perth too. Yes. We, there we always is. forget that. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of really great stuff happening here. It's definitely a smaller scene, mm. so it doesn't feel um, – and the community definitely has a different relationship with art than I, I know like Melbourne does. Um, Melbourne's art ecosystem is far more diverse, but that's not to say that there's not amazing stuff happening in here. And I've been really lucky to make some really good relationships with artists here and it feels um, like a really good place for me at the moment. Mm. So can you give us a bit of a rundown of what a day or a week in the life of Kelly Fleedner doing a PhD <laughs> living in Perth looks like at the moment? Oh, my God. <laughs> I already please. asked you what you ate for breakfast, but you can tell us again if you want to. Tell uh, us. No, <laughs> I'm like not very structured person mm. at all. Um so it just depends what I'm focusing on. Like if I have, if I've, <laughs> if I'm teaching that day, I'm probably waking up really early and preparing for that. Or if I have a lecture later in the week, I'm probably writing that in late hours of the night. Or um, 
you know, like I said, I have this project with Tour and New Music later this year and I need to write a catalogue for that. So maybe one day I'll be working on that and then the next day I'll be working on my PhD or whatever. I don't know. It Do just depends. Do you have depends. a designated space that you write from? Or you... At the moment I have like a little um, writing area in the house that we're living in mm-hmm. but I also recently got a, an office at UWA. So oh, great. Yeah, so I'm like half the time at UWA and then half the time at home. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so do you do you kind of chop your day into, I mean, you, you kind of just touched on it then, but um, do you spend like sort of a majority of your day writing then? Um, no, it, no, I don't know. Like it just depends. Like um, I spend a lot of time reading. Like I mm. actually read a lot and I find that um, – you know, like I could be reading anything from like, um, you know, like Sally Rooney's latest novel to Ben Lerner to like Chris Krauss to Maggie Nelson to like more art theory stuff or literary. I read a lot of literary theory too, which is informing my PhD as well. Um, so I, I read a lot and I write a lot. I, yeah, reading, writing. I try not to spend too much time on the email you know, like try not to do too much admin. Yeah. Do you, do you have uh, certain limits in place or do you just sort of like try and smash out what you can every day and just get out of the way? No, I don't have any hard or fast rules. Yeah. I just, I find I don't work like that. I'm a bit more yeah. like boom bust. Yeah. <laughs> like the boom is like right before the deadline and then the bust is like I'm exhausted after working <laughs> yeah. like 16 hour days for a week. But um. Yeah, it's I'm not prescriptive about this. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. I think emails has come up in every single one of our shows. Yeah, literally I just everyone. Like don't. I try not to look at emails, particularly in the morning, because I find my mornings are like the most creative moment for me. And if I like start listening to a podcast, or if I like turn the news on, or if I start looking at emails, it's like my creative brain is done for the day. So yeah. I really have to like not think about any of that stuff just like protect, for as long as possible space. yeah just like mm. push all of that stuff further into the day as possible yeah um just on that um with the mornings being the most um creative and productive time I'm the same but um I'm just being privy to some other information like over the years of being a friend with you um about you getting up really early in the morning to work mm. is that something that I would say nighttime actually <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people are shocked when they hear how early I wake up sometimes. Yeah. So if I, so, okay, this is like, I know it sounds crazy, but like I'll often wake up at like three to start writing. Mm. And what time Um, do you go to bed? If like nine, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like if that's, if that's like my current routine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I'll probably go to bed at nine or 10 and wake up at three. Mm -hmm. Um. And I just, I know that sounds crazy to people because some people were like, oh, I had to wake up at like seven this morning. <laughs> I'm like, bitch, that's a sleep in. Yeah. Um, do you? So I know it sounds crazy, but it's just, yeah. it's just how my brain works for some reason. Yeah. And do you, do you sort of um, counteract that with having sl- like a sleep later in the day or do you, do you just No, I just, through? I guess I don't need that much sleep comparative. Some people are like, I have to go my eight hours. Mm. That's but, me. Um, yeah, no, like apparently, apparently that's most people. But I just um, 
Yeah. I, look, I'm pretty useless after like five though. <laughs> you know, like. Done for the day. It gets to the afternoon and I'm like, okay, time for the emails, time for the easy work. Yeah. Um, it's just that kind of like really quiet morning time that is just really perfect. Mm. And do you, do you find that time um, specifically, I mean, I, I definitely enjoy working in the mornings too, but we're talking more like, you know, six or seven. Um, mm. Do you find it to be even more so um, free of distraction because there's, you know, there's not really anyone driving on the roads. There's a kind of quietness, like all the animals are quiet. Is there something about the kind of like nighttime, I guess, that, that you find even, you know, that um, helps you kind of focus more or? Yeah, I think it's two things. It's like I love it being dark. Like I love the nighttime darkness. I think that that really helps with like focusing or something. I'm not quite sure what the psychology around that is. But it's also like being really fresh. And so it's not like I'm very good at like staying up all day and then working late into the night, although I do do that sometimes. Like if I'm panicking about like giving a lecture the next day and I'm like, oh, I've just got to like do these slides or something, like I will stay up late but it's not like my best creative creative working time. So it's like a combination of being rested but also being dark. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Very, mm-hmm. very interesting. Um, so uh, what, what have been some of the biggest resources um, that have kind of assisted you along the way um, that you would want to share with, um, you know, someone that might be uh, just starting out in their career? Um um friends like your people that you go to school with (laughs) um and I don't mean like that you are mining your friends of resources (laughs) and energy (laughs) but I mean um I I genuinely think that it's like the conversations that I have with people that are the most useful things and I've never been someone who is that interested in like working up in my career in in like finding someone more senior and wanting to work collaboratively with those people. Although like when that happens, it's great. I've always been someone who loved working with my like cohort mm. or your peers, like the people that are your age that are thinking about things, not exactly my age, but like, you know, that kind of moment, a similar moment in their careers or um, yeah. So people like Rowan, who I worked on the journal with, who's a really good friend of mine has, we just have amazing conversations all of the time and that really helps me to kind of focus in on the things that I'm interested in, the politics that I'm interested in, the theory that I'm interested in or um, you guys or Patrice Sharkey who um, is now at, shit, what's that gallery called? ACE in Adelaide? Yeah, Ace Open. Yeah, Ace Open in Adelaide. ACE, I have no idea, Ace Open. Um, Patrice is a wonderful person to just like, bash around ideas with or you know Sheree Schweitzer or Sarah Workmeister or oh, you're just listening who the hell knows lots of, of people legends. shout out <laughs> no but you know what I mean like people that are those are the best resources but mm. having said that good to get a good grant every now and then and <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah yeah and use arts organizations like Next Wave was probably one of the best experiences of my life mm. as a young yeah. practitioner mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so really use those organisations that nurture emerging practitioners. Next Wave, Un Magazine, Runway in Sydney. Um, because you're only emerging for so long. <laughs> so you have to kind of use those opportunities when you can. Yeah, yeah, and they're there for you. Yeah, and um, we're all really lucky that they're there for us. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. They're great. Um, is there any advice that you would have liked to have received when you were at uni or when you first stepped into the office at Westface when you were volunteering? Um, I think that I was really unnecessarily stressed about being an imposter for a really long time, like just a really long time, like worried that people thought I was a dummy or something. And it's just takes up way too much energy. And it's like also just not true. Like everyone's doing their own thing and working on their own projects. And so you should just, um, put in the time, do the work, do good work and like don't stress out about all of the other like anxiety kind of stuff that oscillates around you being like nervous about your place in the arts world because it's do just like. Do you have any tips to how to deal with that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anxiety. Yeah, that would be really helpful actually. <laughs> do you have an it answer? Took, <laughs> took me like a really long time. Hey, um, like I... I did a master's in art history and I remember just having this like panic attack about handing in my thesis and I just, I literally thought it was like the worst thing in the world. I thought I was like going to fail and so I sat on it for like a year before I even handed it in and then I handed it in and I got like a H1 and everyone was like really stoked about it and I got like the best comments back and I think that was like the first moment where I was like, do you know what? I'm okay. Like I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> and so it took a really long time and just working and having patience and experience and also like really trusting the people around you because you're not like just putting work out into the world completely autonomous to anything else. Like yeah. you're usually working in teams. If you've been given an exhibition somewhere, trust that the people who have given you the exhibition have faith and know what they're doing and have chosen you for a particular reason. Mm, and or they want you to succeed. Yes, exactly. Everyone yeah. wants you to like do well because it's not just you. So I think like maybe maybe it's like getting outside your own head mm. and like seeing that you're like one kind of part in like a whole ecosystem, that it's not just about you. And then it takes the pressure off. And you can feel a bit better about yourself. Mm. That's some great advice. I'm going to listen back to that, Kelly. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but everyone has imposter syndrome, I think. It, yeah. it's, it's annoying to me when people are, like, too confident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no, there's no top you know, so it's like even even the most successful person, artist, working in the arts, anyone in any industry really is going to have some level of, you know, feeling like a fraud or like they're not, they, they can't do it or not, not being good enough because there's always somebody above them or there's somewhere else that they always will want to aspire to be that's not where they are now. Um mm. 
Mm. So, yeah, maybe good to remember that everybody's probably feeling feeling less than, which is Yeah, sad. and everyone's insecurities manifest in really different ways too. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe in overconfidence. Mm, and absolutely. so I think it's just having a little bit of um, like patience and like being conscious that other people are like nervous about being in the world and presenting their art and like just being kind to other people too. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's a really lovely note to end on, I think, being be kind to everyone. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today, Kelly. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This episode is recorded on the sovereign land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to ProPrac. You can listen to other episodes and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date with what we're up to on Instagram at ProPrac Podcast or send us an email at propracpod at gmail.com.